If you are just getting started with the NGSS and 3D teaching, I want to invite you to check out Bring Wonder Back, an on-demand video series designed to help you understand why moving through the textbook and teaching topics is actually crushing your students' curiosity and what you can do instead. It's going to help you shift the work of learning where it belongs by building your understanding of explorations and discovery-based teaching practices. And finally, I'm going to help you take the first steps toward transforming your students into scientists through 3D learning, which is really what the NGS is all about. You can access this video series at iExploreScience/wonder and get ready to bring wonder engagement and a love for learning back to your science class. All right, to the show. Welcome to the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. My name is Nicole Van Tassel. And I'm Erin Sadler. And we are two science teachers dedicated to helping you cut through the confusion and meet the intent of the NGSS so you can master all three dimensions. The NGSS can seem totally overwhelming, but implementing these standards doesn't need to be. Hi everyone, it's Erin, and I'm just going to take a minute to introduce this episode. This is another episode that comes from Nicole's Facebook group, and we thought it had great information, so we decided to pull the audio and share it with you. This is our last full episode of Season 3, but don't worry, we'll be back with Season 4 after the holidays. In the meantime, Nicole is posting your Thursday thoughts on the podcast to hold you over until we start the next season. The first episode aired last week, and we hope that you enjoy them. Finally, I would like to remind you that Nicole and I are going to be having some Black Friday deals next week, and if you would like to get email updates about these deals, I put a link in the show notes to help you get subscribed to each of our email lists. I hope that you enjoyed this season as much as Nicole and I have, and thank you so much for tuning in. Hi guys, thanks for joining us. Um, Okay, so this is the first time I've ever streamed, well, second time I've ever streamed from Zoom to Facebook. So first of all, everybody who's watching, thank you for your patience um, and figuring all of this out. And for the delay, that was my fault, taking a little bit too much time to set up the Facebook. Anyway, so I am here with Selena and Alexis. They are PhD all knowledgeable people from California, and they're going to tell you about their background. But we are going to be talking about bringing your students' whole selves into the classroom um, and their holistic science pedagogy. So if you are, as you are watching this, please post your questions, because I have some questions about how we can tie this to the next generation science standards. Um, But like, we're here to answer your questions too. So definitely post your questions as we get going. I'm gonna like try to be keeping an eye on the questions while I am also checking out the Zoom and everything. So it's gonna be a little balancing act. First time for everything, right? <laughs> okay, so um, Alexis and Selena, can you introduce yourselves? Sure. Oh, wonderful. Um, so I'll start. Good afternoon or hello everyone, depending on what time zone you're in. <laughs> Uh, My name is Alexis Patterson-Williams. I am an assistant professor at uh, the University of California, Davis, and I um, am excited to be here with you all. I'm a former middle school science teacher. Um, I also did elementary intervention um, for third, fourth, and fifth graders. I've worked in Oakland Unified School District for about uh, eight years or so at uh, various, at a charter school, at a couple of public schools, 
Um, and then I've also worked at a couple of private schools in the Oakland area as well. Um, and I uh, got my PhD at Stanford in curriculum studies and teacher education, specifically looking at science education. And uh, my research is currently looking at issues of equity in science classrooms and really thinking about how we can support um, students to have uh, equitable learning spaces, spaces where they feel like um, they are a part of the science classroom and that science is a meaningful tool for their lives. And so I'm interested in thinking about how we can work with students to students and group interactions to cultivate that, that feeling of belonging in the science classroom, but also interested in supporting teachers. And so that's part of my work and I'll turn it over to Selena. Thank you, Alexis. Um, greetings, everyone. My name is Selena Gray, and I am actually just finishing up my 23rd year in education. I'm a career educator. I started out in high school science in Houston, Texas, and spent the next couple of decades teaching elementary and most recently middle school. And I've taught at traditional public as well as charter schools. And I'm currently an adjunct faculty member at Mount St. Mary's University School of Education um, here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I got my PhD, that's where Alexis and I actually met at Stanford. Uh, mine is also curriculum and teacher education and science. And my research focus was looking at um, how students' identity, how they see themselves in the world, as well as how others see them in the world, determine whether or not they develop what I call an affinity for science or a science affinity identity. Right, because we know we all have multiple identities. So I was very interested specifically in how racial identities or how we racialize um, our bodies and our experiences, how that might influence um, students' decisions to not only pursue science as a career, but also to see themselves as scientists. Um, and I'm very yeah. happy to be here with all of you. That's awesome. I think that's super interesting and super important like I, and I've said this before, I always thought of myself as like not a science person. I was like a language arts and social studies type of person. I mean, I would literally say I'm not a science and math person. And I went through my entire K through 12. I mean, but like looking back in elementary school, I didn't think that way. I loved nature camp and being outdoors and learning sciencey stuff, but somewhere, you know, so it's really interesting how whatever, something happens in school that really shifts those identities and I eventually came back to science, but it was kind of weird little loop kind of meandering path, you know, but that obviously doesn't happen for everybody. And right. looking back, it's like, well, if I had thought of myself as a science person, maybe I would have pursued, I mean, I love being a science teacher, but like maybe I would have pursued like a degree in science and, and become a scientist or something, you know, I don't know. Absolutely. Anyway, um, so I love that. Uh, okay, so can you guys tell us about what your holistic science pedagogy is? Um, for those of you who are listening, I did post the paper. You can go ahead and like go read it yourself. Not right now because, you know, stay with us. But, um, but you can go read it later. But they're, they're going to summarize it for you anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and answer that question. And I really, I appreciate you sharing how you didn't feel like a science person. And I think that that's 
a part of what the heart of what the WSP or the Holistic Science Pedagogy is all about is acknowledging that so many of our students um, from many backgrounds, but also we know that there are groups of students who have been historically marginalized, um, women, um, black and brown children, um, being historically marginalized in the space of science. And so really the holistic science pedagogy is, um, Selena, is kind of birthed out of Selena and I having a bit of a powwow about like, what can we do for the folks who say, I'm not a science student. And I was, and I felt that way, right? I wasn't a science person, so I thought, right? And so we literally sat down in this office that I'm sitting in and we spent hours pouring over our own research um, that we, our studies, our dissertations, and thinking about what did we know from our teaching experience and from the research um, in terms of pulling together these commitments that a teacher could make to really bolster students feeling like science is a space for them and that they could use for their lives. So that's a little preamble, but I, you know, I really connected with what you were saying, Nicole, and I think that's what the WSP is all about, is making science of space that everyone wants to be a part of. So what is, what are these five commitments? And we, these five commitments are um, a commitment to an ever-developing self-awareness, a commitment to science and its practices, a commitment to science as a transformative agent, Go on with the three, there you go. <laughs> commitment to, to students' social and emotional well-being. And then the fifth one is a commitment to restorative practices. Um, and I'll just briefly talk about each commitment. But first of all, commitment moves us past beliefs. And that's why we chose the word commitment. We were really intentional because we can have a lot of beliefs in things that are good, but uh, a commitment requires us to take action. And so we're really asking teachers to really think about what actions they can take. One, to commit to an ever-developing self-awareness, which is really just about developing the ability to interrogate oneself, to have this uh, critical reflection, and to cultivate a critical consciousness of the world. Um, and that's because we are not neutral beings and teaching is not a neutral act. And so we have ideologies and values that integrate in are influencing the way that we teach and the things that we do. And so we have to be able to ask questions about are the thing are there decisions that I make that are steeped in oppressive viewpoints uh, or white supremacist viewpoints. I mean case in point in the times that we're living in today. And what's the work that I need to do to unpack that? How do I need to understand my students and who they are um, in this system um, and how that can then relate to science. I'm gonna to try to make it quick. Read the paper for the like full out, full out, because there's five of these things. So the second one is a commitment to science and its practices. And this is really, uh, I think, what a lot of teacher ed programs do in the methods courses. They really outline what's the new research out there um, in science education, highlight ways to teach the standards. Shout out to Nicole and I Explore Science, right? Mm -hmm. Um, this is what the commitment to science and its practices is understanding the nature of science and the best ways to teach um, the nature and the habits of mind of science, the practices of science. The third commitment is a commitment to science as a transformative agent. We know that a lot of times traditional science teaching is this kind of static remembering of facts kind of cookbook, recipe, labs, and that's not what the nature of science is, right? No, that's not. <laughs> that's why so many people say, 
science is not for me, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's really teaching science in this dynamic way and really highlighting um, in our instruction how science has changed the world, right? From vaccines, right? Science has changed the world. But science has also changed the world in ways that shape us and influence us in ways that are not so positive, in the ways that scientists were called upon to reify constructs of race um, in order to justify slavery. So these things are real and science is powerful and dynamic and alive and it's everywhere. And that's the way we wanna teach science in these ways that acknowledge the power of science. Four, a commitment to, science, to being aware of students' social and emotional well-being. Um, I just wrote a paper talking about how science teachers are literacy teachers, um, but that science literacy and science language um, can really invoke strong feelings and can make students feel alienated. So how do we attend to the emotional distress of asking students to learn the language of science? And that's not to say we shouldn't do it, but are we aware of it? And then are we taking steps to really deconstruct the text so that students are not feeling alienated or are put off by reading science text, which we know is a powerful precursor to really engaging in science. Group work is a place where issues and social hierarchies can emerge. Group work is a great thing, but are we attending to the ways that it can cause emotional distress? Um, so again, we have to be aware of these indicators that our students are sharing in order for them to want to continue to engage and not be in distress in our classrooms. Um, and then lastly, a commitment to restorative practices. When we recognize that, that some harm has happened, whether it's in group work, um, whether it's uh, an affront to students' identities because of some kind of historical harm that we're studying in our lessons uh, about science. How do we repair the breach? How do we repair the breach so that our students want to continue to re-engage um, in science learning and in our science classroom? So those are our five commitments in a big nutshell, because there's so many. Of them. That, was, that was awesome. So I was like jotting yes. down notes because like all of these ideas were sparking in my head. And um, so Selena is going to uh, talk, talk about a couple of the commitments, but like offhand, I just want to mention, because these are the ones that we weren't planning on talking about, but like that social emotional connection, um, for those of you who are watching and might not be the, like how to anchor workshop that series that I'm doing right now, you can sign up or whatever if you want, it's free. Um, but the whole first lesson is exactly about like creating that safe place for students because you literally, your brain cannot learn unless you feel safe and in community yes. with others and are like, like literally your brain cannot learn. And the whole lesson is like the brain science behind that. So, I mean, 100%, we need to be attending to those social emotional issues because for the majority of people, and I mean, maybe there's, you know, some people who are just okay and can, can just whatever, push through it. Push but through. for the majority of people, we do need to feel comfortable in order to be focusing on like the higher order thinking and all of that. So for our students, we need to be focusing on that. So I want, I, that popped in my head. And then um, what you were saying about the, like, what was it? Science, everyone can be a part of. I mean, that's literally one of the tenets of the NGSS is this equality and bring equitable science, like yes. meeting and, and rigorous science to everybody because for so long in like, you know, um, just schools with like lower socioeconomic status or whatever, we've like dumbed down science because they don't have the reading skills or they don't have, you know, 
but we really need to be bringing the same rigorous level of science to all of our students. And so anyway, absolutely. But I just wanted to, those like bells went off in my head, but <laughs> Selena is going to talk about some of the, um, the two commitments. I think there were just two, or was there three that we were going to talk about? Well, we'll, um, folk, we'll highlight two. We'll to highlight highlight two. two that we wanted to really connect to the NGSS. And again, please just like, I know there's a lot of you watching, so please, just drop your questions in the comments. Oh, that was the other thing. I keep looking down here because my laptop is here so I can see your questions. So if you have any questions, just pop them in and um, Selena and Alexis are here to answer those. Yes. But anyway, how do you see this connecting to the next generation science standards and this three-dimensional teaching in the classroom and how we can integrate that in all of that? Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, Alexis, for such a beautiful <laughs> synthesis of those um, the five commitments. And so for the purpose of today, because we're talking specifically about curriculum and curriculum design and curriculum planning, we're focusing on two and three. We're pulling them out, highlighting, but think of these five commitments as a rope, right? And so each commitment is a separate strand, but to really have that strong rope that you can secure and hold things with, you need to have all five strands. So in order, I, I, our argument would be that we all are doing some combination, right? The goal uh, is for all of us to be doing all five because they inform each other. Um, you can have a rigorous, engaging, exciting, um, well-researched, NGSS unit, but if your students' social-emotional needs are not being met or attended to, um, if you have more of a punitive and less of a restorative classroom, if you aren't aware of how your interaction impacts your students' interactions with each other and with you, then it's all for naught. And so, um, again, we're highlighting those two, but just remember for this to really work, right, you want to be attentive to all five. And so when we think about NGSS, let's say planning specifically, um, commitment number two is that commitment to science and its practices. As Alexis explained, and as Nicole went on and said, we don't want to... Um, make our content and our practices less rigorous. So often when we talk about sort of social justice or transformative, you know, feel good curriculum, one of the complaints from the scientific, I do a lot of this, one of the complaints from the scientific community <laughs> is that, you know, it's not rigorous enough or the content is lost. And what we would argue is no, that has to be a commitment. If you are a science teacher, you are doing students a gross disservice if you are not giving them constant opportunity to engage with the content of science, which includes the vocabulary that Alexis mentioned, which includes also the practices of science. So when NGSS talks about those science and engineering practices, right, that's part of this second commitment, right? So it ties beautifully with the NGSS. So even think of all of the standards Think of the DCIs, think of the cross-cutting concepts, think of the SCPs. Those are all part of that commitment number two. And you have to be committed, right? Not just think, you know, it's good for them to learn. You don't want to pick and choose. But if you're fully committed to your students being able to go out into the world and be those 21st century learners who are ready to either go into an industry or into the university or just into the world, they have to have that foundation, the science foundation. 
And then the third commitment is this idea of science as a transformative agent, right? I think a lot of us already talk about sort of scientific discovery. We talk about all of the great breakthroughs. We talk about, you know, genetics. We talk about, you know, astronomy. Um, but it's more than that, right? Because in order for students to feel that connection, they have to be clear on how science also has a more personal and individual transformation. And so it could be something like, it could be health. It could be talking about nutrition. It could also be talking about transformation on a community level. So when we talk about environmental issues that impact them, that impact the world, we can also talk about global issues of transformation. And also, in addition to sort of the good, right, the, the, the positive moving us forward sort of evolutionary concepts of transformation, we have to also talk about how science has been used to create and maintain hierarchies of oppression. And that's across demographics. Someone who automatically comes to mind is Linnaeus, right? Carl Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy. I know I learned about him in high school and I'm sure other folks, some of us may have taught about him. Um, and it's, not just that he was a botanist talking and, and uh, um, a, a physician who was talking about, you know, classifying across kingdoms and species, he went on and classified humans, right, initially into four categories. And it was based on the color of their skin or their phenotype, as well as where they were from. And then he took that and he continued to develop that concept over time to where he eventually added characteristics and added dispositions. And you can imagine which group, which, which group had the most negative, right, characteristics and negative affect and negative behaviors and those who had the more positive, right, honorable and noble characteristics. And so you see notions there, even in science of white supremacy, okay? This is what we have inherited. And when you're talking about ideas that were widely disseminated globally from centuries ago, um, and if you go back and if you look at what Linnaeus said, if you look at what Blumenbach later said, if you look at what Thomas Jefferson said about people of different phenotype, you'll say, oh my gosh, some of these ideas that I have, you know, that I've been socialized to believe, these are not new. These are ideas that were literally created as part of a mythology in order to justify treating certain people in different ways. So when you say the African has a higher tolerance for pain, is slovenly, um, is lazy, is not as intelligent, and these were literally what these scholars and scientists and leaders were saying, then you can understand how we carry these ideas, even subconsciously almost, into our classroom, yes. right? These are the ideas that have been passed on for centuries. I think it's interesting too that you brought like that example up because I feel like when we think about oh how science has been used in like negative ways a lot of times like we think of like very and I don't mean this is like a, well I'm comparing it but um like extreme like torturing twins during the holocaust where you were you would be like well that's just totally ridiculous and and that's like so extreme and but like where this, I feel like 
it has just as damaging like long-term impacts on like so many people but you might look at it and think well they weren't torturing people in experiments or you think of like science um back in like medieval times where they were doing experiments on live people to learn about doctor stuff right um and you're like okay well those are examples of science being used in a horrible way but like showing that you don't necessarily have to be tortured i guess my, my gist is you don't have to be like experimenting on people or cutting on people or like things like that to to have these like really bad impacts to the way science is used or approached or um like the repercussions of I don't know how I, I don't know I'm not really 100% sure what point I'm making here <laughs> oh, no, I think your point is well spoken you're right we're you're, I mean go ahead Alexis go ahead I think that's a great well, point I mean I think to just amplify what Selena is saying um and to connect to your Nicole you know a great researcher named Beverly Tatum has this idea of the smog um and she talks about how the oppression um, and these white supremacist ideas are a part of the smog that we breathe. We are all smog breathers. So we're breathing in these ideas that are the legacy of Jefferson and Linnaeus. Um, and it's not just them, right? But this is a part of the legacy that we're breathing in. Um, and so then what does that mean when we carry that in and we haven't done the work, right? To interrogate the fact that we are all breathing in that history that is contaminating the world around us, right? Um, what does that mean in terms of how we entreat? How do we explain why students are not engaged or interested? Do we have certain explanations for certain groups of students that we don't have for others? I don't know how many times in PDs I've heard folks say, well, I'll do this with my gate students, but I'm not gonna do it with my lower performing class because this is just too much for them, right? And so when you are starting to do that taxonomy, right, making those taxonomies in our mind, it's got a root somewhere. And so you've got to really do that interrogation because it is hindering our ability to commit to doing the rigorous science teaching that the NGSS is requiring us to do. And if you're in a school where students are quote unquote low performing on standardized tests, then what's gonna be your incentive to engage with this, the NGSS, which is quite different from most um, previous forms of standards, right? So it, it breeds this kind of thinking that can then inform how we approach teaching and approach our students. And also, I think it also helps us to understand why certain communities are distrustful of science and distrustful of doctors and things like that, because there is a history where science was abused and so part of that disinterest is a historical one. Uh, right. We have to think about how do we repair the harm and how are we carriers or how are we or builders or menders of the breach. Right. And if and excellent. And, and with that, which again, I think Alexis just touched on, this idea of, you know, I like to believe that most people I'd even say all, why not, have, have good intentions. I think there are very few people on planet Earth who wake up in the morning saying, who can I cause harm to today, right? right? And so that being said, imagining you have a group of doctors in the South in a state who decide that they want to experiment on a group of people 
to see the impact of some kind of drug or allow some disease to run its course and to see what happens. Mm -hmm. How do we decide what group of people we're going to experiment on? When you have folks who say, gee, we really want some free labor, right, who we can treat any old kind of way that we can make money off of, how do you decide what group of people that is going to be? Well, it's very convenient when you have this taxonomy that says people who look like this have these characteristics. People who look like this have these characteristics. People who look like this have these characteristics, which really means they're not even fully human. Therefore, however we treat them, it doesn't matter because they're not even human. And so we cannot in 2020 even um, undervalue the impact of this historical scientific taxonomy. When we say this is foundational to understanding white supremacy, it is literally foundational. And the beautiful thing about doing this work is we can begin to identify it, address it, interrogate it, and change it. But if we continue moving forward as if folks just are born like, oh, those kids are born with some genetic predisposition to not like science, as opposed to, no, where do these ideas come from? Well, if you said that Black people and Indigenous people were not intellectually inclined, and you said that 300 years ago, and that idea was never disrupted, then we almost have these, we have these ideas almost subconsciously. Okay, so we have a question. Someone brought up the syphilis experiments, um, Mm -hmm. which I am, um, were you kind of like alluding to? Yes. Um, that's what I thought of too. Oh, I wasn't um, subtle. I thought I was, I was, I'm glad that the folks knew. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> they knew what I was talking about. Uh, and then, I love it. So then someone asked, so how do we differentiate in an appropriate way for students without watering down materials? So, um, Alexis. yeah, you guys. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a, it's a good question. I first want to say that I think it's important to, listen and, and learn our and learn our student populations. I think one we have to think about our age group, right? So there's a way to enter into certain conversations with kindergartners and first graders um, that are, you know, that are appropriate for that age group in ways and, and to touch on things that are, you know, more appropriate for our middle school and our high school students. Uh, but for me, I found that my students were already dealing with the vestiges of, you know, of these things. And so they brought to me these instances in their daily lives, not necessarily around like the syphilis experiments, but of where racism was coming up for them, right? Uh, racial profiling that they experienced walking to school, wanting to, hearing people say, oh, that's so white. Why do you talk like that? That's white. That's what white folks talk. These things, to me, I'm like, bring them on into the classroom because that's where I'm going to start my conversation. I'm going to start with what you bring in and be able to bring in this, these various perspectives and context and connect it to science and say that science is life and that science can either help us understand what's going on around us um, by understanding the phenomena that's going on. It can help us see the world differently or that science um, can help, can, can be connected to what's going on. And we can use that historical perspective 
to really understand things. So I, I think it's one about bringing in what we know is pertinent to our students because of what they say, because we understand the history of the community, right? And we understand the work that's happening there and then making it relevant and then doing it in appropriate ways. Selena? And I would just add, and I would, um, the idea of watering it down, I would encourage um, all of us, because I, I do think, I, I have to constantly, even though Alexis and I have been doing this work, this type of work for a very long time, we are still daily, daily interrogating because we're talking about undoing lifetimes, right? I'm sure we all know about epigenetics, right? We don't just bring our experiences. We are carrying sort of historical legacies and ideas in our bodies, right? Um, but I think this idea of watering down, asking ourselves, why do we think of it as watering it down when we're basically trying to just meet students where they are to get them where they need to be? So maybe if we just shift from... Think, don't think of it as watering down. Think about it as, okay, this is what my students have shown me their understandings are already. These are our, their scientific misconceptions. How can I help them get to where they need to get, right? Um, and that's one of the unique things about science is I tell my students, you're born scientists. Yes. The, the minute you start asking questions, the minute you start taking your toys apart, the minute you start trying to explain what a rainbow is, even if they're not correct, that is still, you are actively engaged in science and scientific inquiry. And so all of these babies are scientists. The minute they walk into your room, we are not making them scientists. We're trying to remind them, remind sorry, hyphenated them of who and what they are. They were born scientists. When they're crawling around, putting things in their mouth, ah, make a face, you yeah. just did that, you tested. So we're yeah. not making them scientists, yeah. right? Yeah. We're trying to undo the damage of a world that says only boys can do science. Only these kids can do science. Only white folks do science. Black or folks don't do don't science. Don't ask questions. I'm exactly. going to tell you what you should know or what exactly. you should ask or what you should think. Yes. Exactly. Can I, can I just add in also, I know we're bringing in the, the transformative justice racialized perspective, um, but I just want to clarify that talking about our framework we're not saying that this is a framework that only black and brown students or historically Absolutely. students can benefit from oh. everybody needs to be engaged in this conversation everybody um, everybody so and everybody brings things and ways for us to think about transformative uh, approaches justice issues um, and and we also need to bring stuff to our students. So if our students are living in a colorblind world where they don't see these things or where they're only thinking about uh, injustice in particular ways but not in others, it is incumbent upon us to bring, this, bring these conversations to our classrooms. So I just wanted to also make clear that, you know, you might say to yourself, my students have never been racially profiled. Great. And also... That's, there's still conversations and ways to bring in and layer in these issues of justice um, for all of our students. 
Well, that actually, that reminded me, there's, <laughs> I thought about it a couple minutes ago and then I forgot about it, of course, because um, I didn't write it down. But that, what, what you mentioned about like the syphilis experiments, we'll kind of mention and hint it at whatever. Like, even if your students don't have experience with the syphilis experiment experiments, or if your students don't have experience with like, I've used this, used this example, um, we used an example of people in, I think it was India, we watched a short little video clip of it, losing their homes due to sea level rise due to yeah. climate change. So um, the disproportionate impacts of climate change, right. basically. Like my students aren't losing their homes because of climate change, but they could relate on like an emotional level. So it doesn't even have to be like the same exact phenomenon if they can relate to like the same emotional kind of, so they don't have the connection to the syphilis experiment they haven't been experimented on, but they can relate to the like racial profiling of it and the injustice of that aspect. So Absolutely. you can find like pair it, like it doesn't have to be, this is my direct student's ex experience. If you can yeah. connect it in like another way, like an emotional connection or Absolutely. parallel Absolutely. or whatever. When we're only, you know, tying back to like the phenomena, you know, at this, the transformative and social justice issues as phenomena. Absolutely. And we have a couple, so a couple comments were like integrating indigenous knowledge along with Western science perspectives. Um, That's under commitment number two. So if you get, if you actually number three, so if you, if you read the paper, you will see that that's beautifully stated and it comes totally under three where we talk about disrupting the notion that science should be the domain of Western European males. That, so absolutely. Um, and then someone mentions along those lines, science is only as good as the people doing it. So <laughs> like, yeah, if you only have those perspectives in their science field, like what are what kind of science are you really getting? And I feel like even in um, like medicine, a lot of, if you look at, I mean, just research women and people of color and like medicine is biased against, you know, a, a woman yeah. doctor and they say you're you have anxiety or you're overreacting or you are stressed or something, you know what I mean? And, and right. there's all sorts of thing, I don't know, studies. And, and it's in, but then we also aren't represented in the field as, as much, you know what I mean? Right. So if you have better representation, then you're going to get better perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And again, just, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of folks will look at all of these indicators of health and wellness, all of the sort of disparate representation, all of the, you know, low, high mortality rates, um, just, and, and how it spreads out by demographic. But in the back of our mind, there's this idea, but of course that's supposed to happen because they're black, because they're indigenous, because they're, you know, Latinx. So of course that's supposed to happen because for centuries yeah. we've believed that those people are predisposed to all of these and so it's almost it's almost like saying what happens to them is not only expected but it's okay and so that is where we have to get in and really disrupt mm -hmm. or I've heard like well it's never going to change anyway that's like something right. I've heard people saying lately which yeah. is like okay well if you have that if you if you think about it that way sure it's never going to change but it's just, it's just a cop-out like, right, which is basically saying what's well, okay like, for it to not change for those like, folks, right? Know, there's litter all over my yard because I keep littering, and that's never going to change, so there's going to be litter all over my yard. Okay, we'll just stop littering. Like, not that it's, <laughs> it's just as easy as stop yeah. littering, but I mean. Right. But the question but is, you, what's your work? What's your work? Right, exactly. Where can exactly. you impact change? And so that might be your classroom, and that might be with your 30 or 60 or 100. Your area of impact. 
and why not have an impact and why not be transformative and why not be just and why not disrupt harm in your sphere in your in your area right have control right so we see teachers as agentic we right. see teachers as transformative we see as intellectuals and to say it's bigger than what I can do. I feel like it's a stripping of, of, of the agency and the intellectual uh, powers that teachers have. And often, and often, even if we take it out of the classroom, someone, well, someone once told me I was lamenting how no one's, you know, the world isn't changing. And this happened, this was a few decades ago. And I was just lamenting and complaining and whining. And my friend who was an activist said, just looked at me and said, those who complain the most are usually the ones who are doing the least. And I was like, oh, but I get it. And doing the most, according to, if you look at the five commitments, it all comes down and begins with the teacher. So a teacher who tries to skip number one and just say like, you know, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, I'm not LGBTQ antagonistic, I believe everyone is equal, and then they try to jump into two, three, four, and five, it's not going to be authentic or sustainable. Because as Alexis said, when she mentioned Beverly Tatum, we're breathing in smog, not just of racism, but all of these sort of isms, right, that um, direct and influence our actions. And so that's number one is, is the toughest one. Yeah, you have to number see one is the toughest one because who wants to sit and be like oh my god I said that and oh I did that <laughs> and oh I did that once and oh I thought this thing right yeah but you have to do that to be able to do the rest okay so here is a really like long and hard question okay so looking back at the history of education in America and its roots as you know are steeped in racism and sexism colonial oppression genocide of native children and education was used as a means to destroy native culture and even I mean lots of different diverse cultures in general um, how do we break down those barriers within this very system that really needs a complete reformation using science as a vehicle to open up children's perspectives to the world and to different cultures so I think this is interesting. My thesis was on um, education. My master's thesis was on education in like the colonial period. And so she, um, it was um, Am Amandine, Amandine, I'm sorry, I'm saying your name wrong. But she brings up like a super good point. Like education was basically viewed as a vehicle to create a homogenous culture. Absolutely. So how do we change it when the system Absolutely. itself was designed to do that? <laughs> and, and it's a brilliant question. I think it's the yeah. one that we who, um, fashion ourselves as activists and liberators and abolitionists, whatever titles we take for how we sort of do revolution and transformation, that's like the daily question we struggle with. Mm -hmm. And so um, how do I know, how do I do the work to transform, not even transform, I'm not trying to transform a system, I'm trying to create a whole new world. How do I tear down and create a whole new world while as Audre Lorde would mention, I'm, I'm using the master's tools and can I? And so I reached a place and I'll be brief and then let Alexis go of, of more of a both and. And so I would argue that my role is to sort of be grounded in the right now, right? Be mindful, but still keeping my vision on the world that has never been because the world I envision has never been, never. And so my role is to prepare students to be successful in this current 
system, which means if I'm a science teacher, I want to get some doctors, some nurses, some engineers, some mathematicians who are going to be conscious, who are going to fight for justice, who are going to disrupt the inequity, right? So preparing them to be successful while simultaneously preparing them to disrupt, destroy that very system that is oppressive and hierarchical. So it's a both and, and it's, 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 it's a lot of work, but, but to not prepare them would be a disservice because then what, what will they be doing, right? Because at some point they're going to move on beyond my classroom, right? But I don't want them to get comfortable and get status quo and be like, this is cool as long as I've got mine, right? I want them to constantly be critiquing this very system that they are, are a part of knowing that at some point we are going to hopefully disrupt things yeah. and create something new. That's the answer. I mean, it's attention. It's attention. And I think we have to acknowledge the attention. I mean, and I think Selena and I are similar in that perspective. Um, I am, I am not going to, I'm not going to determine where the, where the babies go. Um, in the sense of I am not going to not give them the tools to be successful in the current system in favor of, of being disruptive. I want to give them a both and. I want them to choose their path. I want to be able to present things. I want to critique it, take it apart, have them ask their questions, have them bring their experience, put their lens on it, and we can have a discussion and then I allow them to choose which path they want to take. And I think when we, um, when we make a choice for the child in terms of who they want to be, how they want to engage, um, I, I just feel like we don't have the right to make that choice. Um, I feel like we have to present the world in all of its complexity and nuance um, to our children and then allow them uh, give them the tools to be successful in it and to tear it down at the same time. So I, I'm not even going to try to touch the beauty of what Selena just said, but I do think it's a tension. And I think we are not always going to, it's not always going to be this perfect, like, never, never. we're going to feel like, oh, I am all in the system. I am so worried about the standardized test. And that's real. And I believe in being real with our students. Y'all, we are doing the standardized test stuff today because if we don't, we're going to lose resources. I under No Child Left Behind. We're going to lose resources. We're going to be classified, further classified, classi classified in ways that are not going to be helpful for you. Um, and so we live in this system. I want my students to be able to thrive and to succeed. And we can define and talk about what thriving looks like mm -hmm. for them. And I can engage them as unique individuals, right? And I can lay bare what my philosophy is and be explicit with them. And they can push back on it. And we can co-create this, this classroom system, right? And that to me is where I'm, what I'm envisioning is us, me being explicit and then us co-creating and them tinkering along with me. But realizing that some days I'm going to be totally like, we're going to tear this down. Other days, I'm going to be all in the standard. In the standard. <laughs> right. And I'm going to just be trying to get back to that balance and that tension. That's great. So someone asked, um, I will, okay, okay, I just don't want to forget the other question, but let's do this one first. <laughs> um, 
practical. Like what is something practical that, that teachers can do to work on themselves and then also can do with their students to start bringing in these commitments? So two different, and I, I threw in the students one. I know we talked right. about the teachers one. But. I'll start with the student one. And then is that okay, Alexis? Something that I do, yeah. something I do, there are a couple things. Um, I do something called Mental Health Monday, um, every Monday. And it it's, a, it's a time and space for us to discuss all things related to mental health and wellness. Um, one of the things that students love most are what we call circle time. And so circle time, you know, we circle up and it's a time to discuss anything from specific issues in class. It might be every student's opportunity to just give a word to describe how they're feeling. It might be um, students to, to address a specific question. What's so important about circle is it's, as the kids always tell me, it's one of the only times that they get to talk with an adult and others without being interrupted, without being judged. And so it's this space we create. And when I don't do it, I have kids coming to my room at lunch. Are we going to have circle today? And I teach middle school, right? Um, and so that's a very easy way. Doesn't require any lesson planning, any lesson design. It's literally, okay, you all circle. We create protocol, which is only the person who has the talking piece speaks. And obviously circles have been around for millennia. Um, indigenous um, civilizations mm -hmm. have used it. Um, and so the version we use is just very sort of modified. And I explained to them we're creating a safe container for you to put your thoughts, your words in the circle and it's safe. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing and the students, it, it completely changes the whole space. I love that. I feel like that's something that elementary teachers, I mean, everybody, like they do circle time every morning, you start your day and they do these check-ins, but in, right. in high school, a lot of time we don't do, we don't do those check-ins. We might, right. if we have a couple minutes at the end of the, of a Friday, maybe you say, what are right. you doing this weekend? But we don't do those check-ins as much. And I think it's, we should be like, it's, it's absolutely you build those relationships. Absolutely. Um, and it kind of makes me think, so my son is almost, he's turns three next week and he is in this weird phase where all the time he'll be like, mom, I'm talking to you before he starts talking. Or if he in any way feels like you're not listening, like if I'm driving and he's telling me a story and I like look to like turn or something, he'll stop his story and say, mom, I'm talking to you because he wants to make sure like, and I'll be like, I'm listening. But like he, is communicating that he wants me to listen, but our students don't do that by middle and high school. You know, right. if they, even if they have something they want us to hear or have something they want us, you know, they want our attention, typically they don't reach out like that, but they still want our attention, you know? And I love that that's giving them, they don't have to ask for it then, you're, you're just right. giving it to them. So right. I really love that. <laughs> Thank you. Alexis, do you want to share? Well, I just want to shine a light on, on Selena because she is my sister scholar and I'm always uh, so inspired by her. Um, if you have a chance to read the article in there, one of the many amazing things that Selena does in her classroom, and we pulled this into the lesson that we, an exemplar of the way to teach the WSP, is Selena has an affirmation that she has her students read every day um, or declare out in the atmosphere. And we believe words have power. We know 
that words have power. And so one of the things um, that I think taps on many of our commitments is really having students declare who they are as scientists, as scholars, weaving in the practices of science into who they are and what they do. Um, and it's, I read it because I think that that's definitely one way to create a culture, um, to shape and remind, as Selena um, stated, students of who they are um, and that science is what they do. Um, and so I think the affirmation is something that Selena has created that I think is a powerful um, tool that you can commit to and you can support your students in committing to, to memory that they will take with them far beyond your classroom. Um, you know, I think one of the easiest things that you can do around commitment number four is just to get to know your students. And I think it really connects on a lot of these commitments. But you need to know who your student is at homeostasis um, and getting to know them so that when they come off the wall for whatever reason or not engaging, that you don't have some can reason, right, about what, who the student is or why, but that you can understand and engage them. So it's really about, to me, being able to see and have right interpretations and asking right questions about these individual students <clears throat> that you're engaging with so that you can re-engage them. Um, the other thing that I think it gets back to number one, you know, the co five commitments can feel like very overwhelming and I've done workshops and folks are like, whoa, I like it, but whoa, and where do I begin? And I always say, you know, you have to be, I always tell folks, begin where you're strong. Like, first of all, recognize that you're doing at least one of these things well, if not more. So what's the thing that you can like shout yourself out about and how did you develop that expertise? How did you develop that know-how? What did you do? And can you take that know-how, knowledge of de developing expertise and bring that to one of the other commitments where you have a desire? Like, don't pick the one that you are just not there yet. Pick the one that you're like, I really want to do this. I have a motivation and let me do what it takes to develop that expertise, right? Teaching is a profession. So we have to develop ourselves constantly. The crux of this commitment to being, to having an ever developing self-awareness is that you are a forever learner. That you're Absolutely. Five years and you're there. Selena has got a PhD. She's got a master's. She's been teaching for, you know, more than two decades, and she is the most PD-going person. <laughs> She's got all the certificates, all the PDs. I'm like, this, this woman knows everything, right? And because she, she knows what her students deserve, and she's constantly trying to build, be trauma-informed so that she can understand what social and emotional well-being looks like. And that's what I'm saying. You're not going to do all these things at once. That's the goal. And that's life's work of a teacher. Um, I would say of a person, but of a teacher. Um, and so pick one, pick an area of one, and then say, okay, I'm going to do a PD. I'm going to find a teacher that I think is exemplary, and I'm going to observe them if they allow me. I'm going to find a, a, a professional learning community to do a book reading around, or uh, find somebody who will be willing to work with me and come in and observe, and we can have honest conversations. Or I will video myself and interrogate myself around this particular practice, right? It's summertime. 
way to get some summer reading in, right? I just think that we can take parts of this and really break it down so that it's manageable, manageable, but it is and always an ever-developing self around these issues of justice, but around our content knowledge, around how do we become aware of students' emotional well-being, how do I become more restorative in my practice, all of these things we need to be ever developing in, and we can pick an area at a time um, and use our, our, our what we already know how to do. Right. Um, build out forward. And I'll add, oh. I was just going to say, you don't have to do everything at once. Right. Absolutely. Down in it. You can. Absolutely. And just on number one, because I get asked that question a lot, and I'm going to be just very frank. Um, when I started teach within the 90s, I was, um, I've struggled with my depression my entire life, um, you know, clinically diagnosed, um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which my depression is the result of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So I started self-helping pretty early, reading all the books, watching the videos, um, going to talks. And so everything that I was doing for my personal life, I realized, well, wow, this, some of this stuff might help my kids. And so as I was developing and healing from my, um, my emotional struggles, my psychological traumas, going to therapy, going to counseling, all of those things, I found the elements like, oh, I could bring this into my class. I mean, I'm not going to have my students strapped on a machine with, you know, getting brain tapping, but maybe I can at least talk about neuroscience and show them pictures of how brains looked that are going undergoing trauma right and so one is ongoing one there one that self-developing awareness what I would say is all the things that you do to help yourself feel good bring those into your class I'm also very transparent my students know that I struggle and have struggled with depression so I'm very real to them I'm and I present myself not to say you know feel bad for Miss Gray and Dr. Gray, but to see that this is where Dr. Gray, Miss Gray has come from, and this is the kind of stuff that I do to help myself, yeah. so that it gives students permission to talk comfortably about their struggles mm -hmm. and to be open to um, different techniques and strategies. So we talk about breathing, we talk about, you know, I do yoga, mm -hmm. um, I do some yoga with them, but it's really a different kind of way engaging. I mean, seeing your students as if they were your very own children, right? How would you, if you taught a classroom full of your own children or your nieces, your cousins or nephews, what would you do? Mm -hmm. um, and so for number one, that, that personal thing is do your work. Like only you know your work. If you know you need some therapy, if you know you need some counseling, if you know you need to join a support group because there's some trauma that you have kind of packed away, and if you know that there are things that trigger you, triggers are areas of, oh, I need to do some work there, right? You don't want to carry triggers throughout your life, okay? Mm -hmm. So something triggers you, you explore, you stick with that, you interrogate that, and you get the help. So that personal healing help for yourself is crucial to do this, to do this work well. Yeah. We all got stuff. So there's no shame. No, if I you, know. Everyone. If you know that you got some colorism issues, if you know you got some issues with race, some whatever, work it out and you can. 
affinity groups are so important. White folks need to talk with white folks about racism. Black folks need to get with black folks. Brown folks need to get with brown folks because there's healing and pain and experiences that we all have. And you need that space to hold with people who have a more similar experience of being racialized beings, right? That's the kind of work that you also want to be engaged in. I'll just say you must do that work if you're doing speech. You must do it because our yeah. kids have a choice. They have to be in school. School is compulsory. They have, they have, they have right. their statements and repercussions if they don't come to be with you. Yeah. So that you should be your best version of yourself. Absolutely. This heavy lifting, because they have to. So we have to, because they have to. Um, and that's the spirit behind the WSP. I like what you said right there. Like, they deserve your best you. And your best you is not this hiding everything and not being able to work through your stuff. You bring in your full pain body to them every day is not your best you because your pain body is going to collide with their pain bodies and they don't have the language to explain theirs. At least you do, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta bring your best. Yeah. Healthiest. It's part of like the responsibility of, I mean, like we are, Typically, teachers don't have a whole lot of control over, like, certain things in our profession. You know, we have a lot of administrators and states and yada, yada, telling us what to do, limiting supplies, whatever. But, like, in your classroom, you are in a position of power. I mean. Absolutely. And that's a big responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely. Work your SHIT out. And, and that's, I'm still working mine out. So I'm not saying work it out. I'm saying be constantly. Yeah. The same thing we want them to do we need to be doing. We often have higher expectations of children than we have for ourselves. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Even my, even my like little kids, like they'll be having a bad day and like tantruming and, and you know, it sets you off or whatever. And you're just like, okay, well I'm 32 years old and I'm like having a tantrum because right. I don't know, this broke or something. And meanwhile, right. I'm getting mad at my three-year-old because exactly. he's having a tantrum and he's three. We all do. We do it, right? We <laughs> you know, all do but, it. We all do yeah. it. But like you say, they're three. And so we got to, we got to work it out. Yeah. yeah. It's not his fault. It's, <laughs> I got to, I got to deal with it. We got to do it. Yeah. I had, a, I had a tantrum yesterday, right? <laughs> the day before I'm on here telling y'all to work your stuff out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think it, we, yeah, we, everybody has, has stuff to work out. And I think also in recognizing like our own things, you realize like what might, what you might not know about your students, but might, what might be below the surface. Um, and like I've shared in email and things like this, my sister was killed by a drunk driver a few years ago. Um, and I mean, I've gone to counseling and dealing with my own grief and things like that, but that whole experience, like I would have, I've had, you know, afterward, not related to that, but students would have, have mentioned things, the experiences that they've gone through and never went to counseling for, never had anyone to talk to about, never. And I'm thinking I was a, I don't know how I was, how old I was at the time, 28 or something year old person going through this and needing to get help because it's a lot to process and it impacts, you know, anxiety and, and how you think of the whole world and everything about, you know, your life. And meanwhile, here's a nine-year-old who went through something similar, never got any help. And now she's 14. And of course, the way she looks at the world or the way she reacts to things is going to be so different and impacted and just being aware of like, I don't know, not that you have to go through something 
horrible for, to, to identify that, but just any of the traumas you've gone through, parents divorcing or um, divorces yourself or breakup. I mean, and, and obviously there's different levels of these, but versions of loss or experiences that were harmful, bad relationships with bosses. I mean, I had horrible student teaching experience, like all of these, when you take the time to kind of work through them, you can really realize how, you know, others can be, have those same kind of issues, obviously different experiences, but the same sort of feelings and how that can impact, I don't know, how they're behaving in your classroom or Absolutely. how they respond to certain things. Or Absolutely. That, that empathy humanizes our students, right? It allows us to humanize our students and not just be like, learn this science. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you learning this science lesson that I went to I explore science and I did all yeah. these <laughs> and I really plant this unit to be the bomb and you yes. are in here tearing up all care. Stuff, right? But yes. how do we humanize our students yeah. um, by realizing that this work is hard and heavy and they're not as equipped as we are to do that work. And so it's all these things at once. Right. Like we just went on this riff about, you know, well-being, but that is a part of science. You right. can't learn science. I know. And People are like, and again, like oh, maybe te like, teaching is a teacher. Teaching is a little more than I thought, right? This is a little more. It's a little more to teaching than what is, teacher, and pro like, teacher and programs are not teaching this. No, no. And not. like what we like mentioned at the beginning with the um, – like the brain and feeling safe and that emotional community. Like you can't learn any of the higher level logic stuff. If you're like wizard brain isn't like right. cool to chill out. And Absolutely. if you're, you know, so you got to get that lizard brain under, that's the whole how to anchor thing is it's like lizard brain, get it under control. <laughs> and then we can go on to the, to the higher order cognitive stuff. Absolutely. So definitely. Absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> so we went a little bit over, but do we have any other, I think we, um, address pretty much all of the questions um if you guys have any other questions i guess you can pop them in here but this is such a good conversation and i'm so glad you're able to like come on and i kind of want to do this again sometime it was so fun <laughs> was, this is awesome we thank you thank you for having on your birthday nicole we it got is my birthday. It's yes. nicole's birthday everybody after you're 21 like birthdays <laughs> don't matter <laughs> I feel like, yes, I feel like it's like kind of exciting until you're 21 and then afterward it's just like wait how old am I <laughs> oh I don't know we're here to celebrate you happy birthday yes thank you truly. Truly, <laughs> all right truly. well everybody thank you for tuning in and remember you can find I will also link the article in the comments here but you can find the um their paper on holistic science pedagogy in there's another post in the group, but I'll also link it here. So definitely go read it. Um, feel mm -hmm. free to like post additional questions or um, I don't know, Alexis, Selena, do you, how would, if they can reach out to us, they can email us. Okay. Um, so I will have Selena. I don't know. Alexis, are you on Facebook? I am on Facebook. Okay. So if you guys email me, cause I'm so bad at messaging. She's not on Facebook very often. <laughs> okay. So I'm not emails um and then people can either message you or email alexis or message or email whatever you want selena however you want them to communicate right. with you and if you want to do like one-on-one -on -one zooms um you know just to someone because alexis and i love this work so um just hit us up we can do one-on-one -on -one talks if you want to brainstorm together if you want to talk about lessons i mean i shouldn't be volunteering alexis because she's 
highfalutin, <laughs> very busy. Um, but I, I am, my full-time gig is middle school, very standard eight to four day. Um, but we, yeah, we, we, we'd love to, if we can offer support in any way. And I actually am enrolled. That's how I've, have okay. come to find Nicole. I am a member of I Explore and I'm going through because while I may be really um, effective pre-NGSS, NGSS is different. And so I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning right along with everyone else who's the PD in the queen, NGSS like training. Said. <laughs> I, ex I Explore rocks, Nicole rocks. Thanks. All right. Well, we will post ways that you can get in touch with Alexis and Selena and yeah, and if you are interested in like the How to Anchor program with the whole lizard brain and the brain science workshop thing, um, the link is in the Facebook group. Um, and that workshop goes through the whole lizard brain thing that I've been mentioning. So um, anyway, thank you, Alexis and Selena. And I'm going to turn off the live Thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank everybody. You for having us. Stay safe, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Take care. Making sure that your lessons are three-dimensional isn't always easy. While you don't need to include all three dimensions every single day, you do want to make sure that each dimension is regularly addressed. I developed a really simple 3D planner to help keep me focused. It helps me track which pieces I'm using in my daily lesson plans. It only takes me five minutes to fill out, and it helps me notice patterns in my own lesson planning. For example, when I first started using it, I noticed I wasn't including the cross-cutting concepts as often as I thought I was. Just by recognizing this, I was able to focus on this one piece and improve my lessons. Right now, you can grab the same template that I use for my own planning for free. Go to sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner to grab yours. That's sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner.